You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning and Happy New Year. Before I get started with my message, I want to wish my wonderful wife, Audrey, a very happy 40th birthday. Happy birthday, Audrey. I'll also wish my oldest son, Liam, a happy belated birthday. He's downstairs with the kids, but I'll wish him a happy birthday as well. Many of you know, might know that Liam was born on New Year's Day back in 2008. Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't officially the first New Year's baby, because in classic Liam style, he took forever getting ready. But... Um, <laughs> So what I'm saying is we, we sat in the hospital for 16 hours or something like that on New Year's Day. So we, we had already stayed up late, you know, for New Year's and then went to the hospital, 16 hours sitting in the hospital. And after all that, we didn't even get a bunch of cool stuff that the New Year's baby usually gets because he took forever. Anyways, he was still born on New Year's Day. And on that day, our lives changed drastically just upside down. We, we literally experienced that saying that people tend to trivially quote on New Year's, out with the old and in with the new, right? Um, as if changing of the year is going to, you know, take away all your problems and issues. No, that's, that doesn't happen. But anyways, we, we did experience that on New Year's Day. Uh, on that day, all of a sudden, we were no longer the cool young couple anymore. We were now responsible parents, In a a flash, our priorities, our goals, our sleep habits, our spending, our daily patterns, everything in our lives changed. Out with the old, in with the new. And uh, in a similar way, this is what happens after we've experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Just as the expression goes, out with the old, in with the new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. It's wonderful. And, and this is also what we've been discovering throughout our sermon series through Colossians, which we, we took a break from for the Advent season. That, but we've been learning that in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Colossians 3, 9 to 10 says, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So like, like changing a pair of clothes, Jesus Christ has, has set us free and he's removed our old rags, our old sinful self, along with all the guilt, along with all the shame, as well as our carnal lifestyles and self-centered and destructive practices that, that went along with it. And, and he has replaced that with new clothes woven from his righteousness, a new look that inspires new priorities, practices, and desires that reflect the image and love of the one who created us and saved us. And we are growing into that, right? And, and this morning, as we step back into our sermon series in Colossians, this is the very place that we find ourselves in the letter. It's a, we see a definition of, of what the new Christian life in Christ is supposed to look like and how it's rooted in his love. And so let's read that now, Colossians 3. We're going to be reading from verse 12 to 14. Colossians 3, 12 to 14. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, 
Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. And above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. This is the word of the Lord. This is one of the most beautiful passages, but as humans, it's one of the most difficult, right? Um, and, and to that end, and I want to say that in my opinion, which I should mention is, is based on the expertise of many other thinkers, pastors, and theologians who are much smarter than me, so this really isn't my opinion, it's, it's uh, smarter people's opinions, but I, I would argue that two of, of the greatest threats or barriers to the fruitful and, and powerful functioning of the church or the body of Christ today are consumerism and individualism. Consumerism and individualism. And quite often those two uh, worldly celebrated principles go hand in hand. And honestly, I'd say part of the blame for their widespread prevalence within the church these days falls not only on our culture's influence. We always blame the culture, right? It's, it's not just the culture's fault. But it's also in the way that we've actually structured our church gatherings over the past 40 to 50 years. Just you know, speak, generally speaking, not just talking about the gate. Um, just the Western church in general. Um, generally speaking, and, and probably due to the rise of you know, seeker-sensitive mindsets and all that kind of stuff, the, the Western church has made it pretty easy for anyone to come into a church building and, and just subsequently get entertained and be, be handed some semblance of encouragement or Bible teaching and free coffee and then, and then go about their week without having to have done a lick of anything themselves to contribute. And to be fair, sometimes we do find ourselves in a, in a season, season of healing or, or rest when, when this is necessary, when, or where we need to just come and receive. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. That's fine. That's, that's great. But besides that, in many ways, I'd say that we've turned the practice of the church gathering into a place where I can get something out of it. Right? It's become a place for individuals to consume for their personal gain. And, and quite often, as, as soon as they're not getting anything out of it, or they dislike the entertainment value or whatever, you never see them again. And, and if you'll remember my message back in November concerning the Apostle Paul's call for the believers in Colossae to put away all that was worldly in them, we might remember that um, the very practice of selfishly consuming and taking at the expense of others, whether that's in lust or slander or greed or pleasure or whatever else, is, is the very worldly practice of, of sin and idolatry which Paul's addressing and, and telling the Colossians to put to death. And so, of course, that's not what the church is supposed to look like or how it's supposed to function. The church, like if we, if we look through the Scripture, we see that the church was designed and instituted by God to be a living temple of his Holy Spirit where believers could embody and live out the holy and new life of Christ that they've been so graciously given and chosen for. No longer consumers, but givers. 
No longer individualistic and selfish, but humble and thinking of others before themselves. To that end, and, and, I, and I did mention this in my, my message on putting away earthly things back in November, but, but that was a long time ago. So to, to make this clear, I want to again highlight the dichotomy between our old sinful nature and our new nature in Christ. So if we were to, to go back and take a closer look at Paul's descriptions of both in Colossians 3, we'd see that both the old nature, which he pleased for us to put to death, and the new nature in Christ, which he, which he calls for us to put on, are both concerned not only with how we live personally, but primarily with how we treat, interact with, and view others. So, so if we were to, to go back to Colossians 3, 8 to 9, at the list of, of, of earthly things or sins from our, our old nature that we're called to put to death, what, do you remember what they were? Sexual immorality, covetousness, lies, anger, greed, slander, and the like. So what do they all have in common? They're all concerning the way we selfishly and erroneously view or mistreat others, right? In fact, an even closer examination of these sins reveals that when we take part in them, they're not only personally destructive, like poison to our soul, but in practicing them, we're actually dehumanizing others for our own selfish consumption or individualistic purposes, right? Where we we treat other human beings like garbage or less than human for the sake of our own self-serving pleasure or our ego or power or greed or lust or whatever else. So if we contrast that with with the passage this morning from Colossians, which again gives us a a list of virtues that define who we're called to be and how we're called to live as image bearers of God, again, we'll, we'll see that it says, have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and showing love that builds unity. So again, this is also a list that's concerned with the way we view and treat others. The difference between them, though, is that while the actions in the first list dehumanize and devalue others for selfish gain, the second list now reveals to us the opposite. Where the old is gone, the new has come. It's the opposite. That Now to live a life pleasing to God is to treat other human beings as fellow image bearers of God as equal human beings who are intrinsically valued and full of worth. We've gone from dehumanizing to rehumanizing, you could say. And in many ways, then sin is about consuming and and taking from others for our own selfish gain. Uh, On the other hand, righteous living is about humbly serving and giving to others out of what we've been given for their gain. The, The old is gone, the new has come. So that's what Paul's speaking to, uh, to us about in, in our passage from this morning. For again, all, all, all of the attributes or, or virtues he lists are based on self-giving love, grace, and mercy, which reflect who Jesus is for his glory, and subsequently serve to build others up in faith and preserve unity within the body of Christ. And, and with that being said, I'm not going to reflect on each of those virtues separately this morning, besides I'm sure we all know what they are. We know what kindness is and compassion is and forgiveness is, right? Uh, and also, we'll be coming back to them over and over again throughout the next month as, as Paul begins to apply them practically to our daily living and in our relationships in the following verses in Colossians. But ultimately for today, I want us to grasp that big picture And Paul actually writes it this way in Galatians 5.13 when he says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. 
This is the new reality for Christians, to be free, to be satisfied, to be complete in Christ, to be so complete and satisfied by Christ, in fact, that we, we no longer need to indulge or consume earthly things or use or take from others in order to temporarily satiate our flesh. Instead, out of the satisfaction and, and abundance of the grace that we've been given, we can actually humbly serve and joyfully give to others in love. So again, just like, like for, for Audrey and I, when, when Liam was born, in, in, the, in a flash, everything changed, and, and suddenly that baby became the most important person in our lives. And, and don't get me wrong, parenting's been difficult at times and is certainly costly in, in many ways, for sure. But we don't regret it for a second, same thing goes with our, our second child, Elliot. And, and the reason we don't regret it for a second is because it's all built on love. It's all built on love. Because of our love for our kids, we willingly, every day, we willingly set aside our own interests and we do whatever it takes to show them our love. And we're imperfect, of course. We make mistakes. But to the best of our ability, because we love them, we consistently offer grace to them and patience as they learn, and kindness when they mess up or don't understand, and compassion when they're down or, the, or when they're struggling. And we even forgive them in those moments when they're just being teenagers. Well, some of you don't have teenagers yet, I see. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But seriously, though, we're, we're no longer living for ourselves we're humbly and joyfully living to, to serve and love them as more significant than ourselves. And in a similar way, this, this is a call for every image bearer of Christ towards each other. And, and yes, it's costly and it's trying at times. Love always is. But it's what the church was designed to embody and reflect for the glory of God. Righteous living, rooted in love, is about serving and giving to others out of what we've been given in Christ. What this tells us as well is that it's impossible to live as a Christian outside of a community of believers. Because, first of all, we need each other. And second of all, it's impossible to express or live out any of those virtues of love or building unity or whatever without having a community to express them in. We need, we need each other. But the other thing, though, that I want to emphasize is that these aren't just like a list of rules or laws that we have to follow, right? This isn't about being legalistic. No, Paul's actually bringing to our attention the, the affections or fruit that will and should naturally be produced in us and out of us due to our new life in Christ. In other words, as Christians, as Holy Spirit-filled believers, this is who we are now. Or as the Apostle John wrote in his first letter, if the love of God is in us, we will love one another. Not because we have to, but because it's who we are in Christ. Uh, just as uh, theologian David Garland writes, he says, Law codes cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit, or similarly, the virtues listed in Colossians 3, 12-13. A tree, for example, does not produce fruit by an act of Congress. It is the nature of a good fruit tree to produce good fruit. In the same way, living according to a standard set by Christ will not come from any demands to live that way. 
It is the fruit of a new nature that God gives to us through Christ. Living a life pleasing to God comes spontaneously when we put on Christ. Those who are being renewed in the image of Christ will produce Christ-like conduct because that is now their new nature. Living a life, I love that, living a life pleasing to God comes spontaneously when we put on Christ. And therefore, the more that we grow or the more that we abide in Christ, however you want to say it, then the more we'll bear fruit that, that mirrors his humility and his love. Or as it says in Philippians 2, 2 to 8, it says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So we see here the mind of Christ is to humbly and selflessly look to the interests of others. Jesus did this for us. We rejoice because Jesus did this for us, right? He emptying himself completely, taking the form of a servant and giving his very life for our sakes. And the thing is, we didn't earn it or, or deserve it. His kindness his compassion, his humility, his patience, his forbearance, his forgiveness, and his unifying love came to us freely while we were still sinners. And, and this is key for us to grasp. Because in the same way, our call to have the same mind of Christ towards each other isn't based on whether or not the other person earns it or, or deserves our grace and mercy or compassion it's not about what have you done for me lately. It's based on the fact that Jesus did it for us. And so we humbly do it for others, for his name. And that's, that's the difficult thing, right? It's like he doesn't deserve my kindness or that person doesn't deserve my compassion or that person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. They, they hurt me terribly. Jesus did that for us. So we do it for others in his name. Again, that's what the church is supposed to look like. That's how its members are, are supposed to, to function towards each other, humbly and graciously building one another up in love. Um, Scott Pace and Daniel Aiken, they write, this list of virtues describes an outfit of loving sacrifice and service. Following Jesus requires us to put on the disposition and duties of a servant just as Jesus wrapped himself with the towel of humility to wash the disciples' feet and clothed himself in humility and willing submission to the Father, we are called to dress ourselves in humble acts of service to God on behalf of others. But too often we are more concerned with feeding our desires than ministering to those in need. Instead, we must take off our spiritual bibs and put on our spiritual aprons that reflect the compassionate heart of our Savior by loving others and willingly sacrificing on their behalf. 
you'll be happy to know that this morning, before I came to church and, and stood in front of you on this stage, that I decided to put on some clothes. <laughs> I know. In fact, this is a decision that I make every single day. Before I go out in the world, I pick an outfit and I put it on. And to be fair, my outfits aren't usually as fashionable or, as the kids say, as drippy as, uh, as Liam, my oldest son's outfits are. Um, but the point is, I'm wearing clothes, which, again, you can give thanks for. Uh, and this is, this is simply what the Apostle Paul is reminding us of here, reminding us of here that every morning we need to make a decision to, to put on Christ. Again, the good news of the gospel, though, is that by his grace and love, he's already given us the outfit one which we did nothing to earn, but yet even so we've still been called to put it on every day before we go out into the world. Simply put, what what this means is taking time each day to to give thanks and and to dedicate our day to the Lord. It means spending time with him in prayer and in the word and acknowledging him in all that we do and asking him to work in and through us by his grace. The the point is, is that if we're daily growing in the Lord and, and in his grace, we'll increasingly and naturally love and serve others with that same grace that he had for us. As Robert Mulholland writes, spiritual formation is being conformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. Spiritual formation is being conformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. Practically speaking, then, we also need to take hold of the reality that church and even faith isn't just about, quote-unquote, me. It's about the whole body of Christ. It's not just about what I can get out of it. It's about what God has called and implanted in me to contribute to its growth and unity. And besides, what we'll find that in doing so, even though it's costly at times, what we'll find is that we actually also benefit from, from living that way. As, as Elizabeth Elliott writes, I, she says, I have found that if, instead of praying for my own comfort and satisfaction, I ask the Lord to enable me to give to others, an amazing thing often happens. I find my own needs wonderfully met. Specifically, though, this means then being, being prayerfully committed through thick and thin to coming to church and, and, and gathering together as believers throughout the week, no longer for selfish gain or as, or as individual consumers. I'm speaking generally here, not pointing any fingers. But rather, for the, we, we come for the benefit of the family of God. To ask not, what can I get out of it? But rather, in the abundance of what we've already been given in Christ, we ask, what can I give? How can God use me to love and serve others today? Where can I use my gifts to build up others in faith? Who do I need to forgive and reconcile with? Who can I pray for? Who can I ask for prayer? Or who here is struggling and needs help carrying their burdens? And how can I be more patient and, and, and forbearing with, with the guy in the row behind me who's singing off key or who has different opinions about politics or whatever else? 
And, and to that end, Paul's a, Paul's a realist here as well, right? He doesn't, he doesn't actually expect any of us to, to be perfect in this, which is exactly why we're called to forgive and be kind and patient in the first place, because that's the point. None of us are perfect. None of us have made it yet. And therefore, in the same way that we need others to be kind, patient, compassionate, and forgiving with us as we grow and as we make mistakes in this journey of faith, we all need to be willing in Christ for his glory to do the same for others. So again, this is the attitude of of love and mercy we've been renewed in Christ to have towards one another. The early church in Acts was was committed to this kind of loving and, and, and generous unity, and God moved powerfully through them while adding to their numbers daily. A.W. Tozer sums this up well when he writes, The church should be a healthy, fruitful vineyard that will bring honor to Christ. A church after Christ's own heart where he can look at the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Among the people should be a beautiful simplicity and a radiant Christian love so it would be impossible to find gossips and talebearers. There should be a feeling of humble reverence and an air of joyous informality where each one esteems others better than himself or herself, where everyone is willing to serve, but no one jockeys to serve. Childlike candor without duplicity or dishonesty should mark the church, and the presence of Christ should be felt in the fragrance of his garments smelled by his beloved. Prayers should be answered so regularly that, that, that we think nothing of it. It would be common because God is God and we are his people. My prayer for 2024 is that the virtues which Paul lists from our passage this morning would become more and more common amongst our church community at the gate. And there is a lot of those virtues already, don't get me wrong. I love this community. I love the way that we're growing in Christ together. But my prayer is that we would see that more and more in the coming year as we seek to put on Christ and grow in the Lord together this year. That is, that we would resolve to grow deeper in Christ and in doing so that that we would, just as as Pastor Pete Gregg recently and timely shared on his Instagram post the other day, which I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase that, that we would become increasingly drawn to kindness more than criticism, to gentleness more than power, humility instead of all those other more obvious kinds of successes, that we would see leadership in the form of living well, being self-effacing, quickly apologizing, consistently prayerful, half-decent human beings. For the Bible uses the same word for morality and beauty. In other words, a moral life is attractive, while a selfish one is ugly. Therefore, we should desire to not just do the works of Jesus, but to actually be like Jesus in and from the core of our very being. In other words, that we would put on 